Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is Sakeb hosting the show. Uh, and I'm joined by our very own Matt Semek and Andrew Burton. And also a big shout out to Red Circle for keep producing these episodes in partnership with Tennis with an Accent. Welcome guys. So yeah, guys, uh, no surprise, Wimbledon is a week from uh, uh, this uh, Sunday, and uh, we don't do draw uh, podcasts, but we will take this opportunity to talk at length what you know could happen at Wimbledon from your point of view and what transpired uh, this past week could be used as a springboard for this conversation. But before we get to Wimbledon, uh, with Andrew Burton here, and Roger Federer has just won his 10th title in Halle. So Andrew, talk about the win today, and also if you can... Uh, compare some of the matches he played this week. Uh, uh, is he peaking too early? Uh, did he have a bumpy road? What did he notice? Uh, and did the week go as expected since he was a top seed? I think that given that it was his 10th victory at Halle, a lot of people would say that it was expected. And if you were listening to tennis TV's commentators throughout the week, any time that Federer looked as if he was in danger of being broken or Horror of Horrors dropped a set to Songa and Bautista Agu, then um, you know the world was spinning off of its axis, at least, as I said, if you were listening to tennis TV commentary. Um, I thought Federer had a good week. Um, I, I didn't see any matches where I thought that he was um, in A-plus form. I thought he was low A's, high B form most of the time. Uh, I thought he actually had some reasonably tricky opponents. Millman has troubled him in the past, took him to three sets in Brisbane and famously beat him in New York last year. And Millman was very consistent off the ground, only gave up the one break. The Songa match, Songa obviously has a pretty good head-to-head against Federer and that went deep into the third set before Federer was able to break. Bautista Agu took an 8 nothing against head-to-head record against Federer, but scrapped hard as we knew he would, played a very good second set and was slugging it out with Federer in the third set and then donated four unforced errors in a row, which is typically a mistake when you're serving to stay in a, in a match. So a disappointing end to the quarterfinal. Uh, Ugerbert was uh, not really, Pierre Ugerbert was not really in the match against Federer in the semifinal. Um, and then today against uh, Goffin, uh, Federer, by his own admission, was under the cosh early in the first set. Goffin came out of the blocks much quicker had a game where he had three breakpoint opportunities. Uh, Federer was able to, to see those off, uh, get to a tie break, dominated the tie break. Uh, Goffin donated a couple of unforced errors. Federer made a superb half volley pickup and won the tie break going away. And then Goffin sort of collapsed like a, Belgian souffle taken out of the oven a bit too early in the second set. Federer broke three times and uh, was lifting the Halle Trophy after the the five-hour speeches or what felt like five-hour speeches before they actually do present the trophy. So I thought overall it was a 
a good week for Federer. Uh, is he peaking too early? Well, he didn't play the nine matches that he played last year, which left him sort of out of gas at the end of the, the, the Haller uh, experience in 2018. I thought he looked pretty good. I thought he looked good on clay. Uh, he was well beaten by Nadal in their semi-final, but no shame there. So that was my takeaway. Matt, what did you think? Uh, not a whole lot I would add. I think that the, the, main, the main point to note is that Hala, at least the last few years, has been tricky regardless of opponent. Uh, he had a close scrape with Benoit Paire in the round of 16 last year. And generally, the past several years at Hala, there's been at least one early round match where he's had a really close shave. Uh, Cole Schreiber, memorably, in 2015. Uh, Souza, Joao Souza, was part of that. Uh, so, you know, there's usually at least one close scrape. This tournament, he happened to have two. Uh, so it's not really all that different. And, you know, especially on what has been called the onion field in Halle, to refer to how dusty it was and how worn out the grass is, Playing three best of three sets on, on that surface, it's just a very tenuous existence. At least one, if not more matches, are going to come down to some fine margins, and you have to master them. And Federer was 3-0 and in first set tiebreakers over the course of this tournament. So he won the proverbial handful of points that you need to win on grass, and he's, he's just usually very good at doing that. Um, someone on tennis Twitter said that... Uh, uh, this was uh, uh, the, the Twitter handle, Anna K Forever, Oleg, um, noted that Federer has won 19 of his last 21 tiebreakers in Hala. So that is exactly the definition of playing the big points well. That's pretty much what you need at, at Hala, where the margins are fine and it's best of three. And it's, it's a shootout style environment on grass, different from the long slugfest that we saw at Queens. So he needed to win the handful of points. It's usually what you need to do. Federer did it. End of story. No, I think that's. Uh, I think you both covered quite a lot. But just an extension, Matt. Another question on Federer. I know this year the big uh, story has been his uh, his return to clay. And uh, do you see any patterns here? Like uh, I know it's hard to compare because Wimbledon's still a week away. But do you think that decision was the right decision considering grass, or do you think uh, by not playing Stuttgart that decision really doesn't have an impact? how he's going to play on grass, uh, more comfortable with rallying. Uh, what do you see if there's a connect? Yeah, I, I think the main, the main thing to take away from Federer's decision to play clay this year is that Federer doesn't see tennis in cookie-cutter terms from, from one year to the next. He, he is really great at seeing each new year as its own situation and I think that a, a part of Federer, while he might not have said so directly, maybe he did, but I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure, you know, not playing clay the past few seasons represented uh, an act of, you know, trying to keep himself fresh. Uh, in 2017, it was more expressly about being prepared for Wimbledon. Last year, it was more about, you know, just wanting to take a break and not overtax himself. And in a larger context, you know, when you're not playing all the time every year, a full workload, that accumulation of downtime enabled, at least from my point of view, it enabled him to play clay this season and not worry too much about his workload. And 
it's pretty plain that that calculus, whether or not he might have used the, those particular words, you know, or that particular framework, the fact that he didn't play Clay in 2017 and 18 enabled him to be relatively fresh for this clay season and the transition into grass. And he's been proven right. I mean, if, if that, if that certainly was at least part of his framework, that's he, he could not have asked for a much better scenario. I mean, the fact that he lost in the semis of Roland Garros, uh, it really doesn't diminish that tournament because it's Nadal on clay and Nadal was, you know, outstanding on that day in nasty conditions. So, I mean, Federer really did as well as he possibly could have, at Roland Garros, um, and so to then go to Hala and win, uh, just uh, there's no way to say that his decision to play clay was a bad one. I mean, I don't know how you could possibly take the negative point of view on that particular decision. Okay, well said. So, and uh, we'll also uh, talk when we talk Wimbledon about Federer being the second seed. But uh, since we have Andrew here, uh, so this is a pretty good week for Generation Fed. You know, another 37-year-old uh, won in London, uh, won the singles and doubles titles. Uh, now also the Madrid tournament director, Feliciano Lopez. So, Andrew, I don't know how much of you caught Lopez's tennis this week, but how is this? This has to be one of the more stunning results. We all know Lopez can play on grass, but this, this has to be extra special for to see him doing this at this late in his career. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And the fact that he pulled off a, a, a grass court double uh, at the age of 37, there can't be that many people who've, who've done that. Um, I mean, I think that Lopez, we were talking about this just before we started this podcast, Matt said that he's, his ranking is number 53 or so, so he's not going to be seated at Wimbledon, and, and there's a lot of players who are going to be looking at, at the draw and, and wondering if he'll show up either in the first round or the second round. Uh, but he'd won the tournament before, and he was always going to be a threat. Even though he was unseeded, he was always going to be a threat. And if you look at the players that he beat uh, to get through, he beat Del Potro. No, Del Potro was a walkover, wasn't it? Yeah. That's right, because Del Potro had the, the unfortunate knee injury. But he beat Raonic, he beat uh, Felix... Oje Aliasim, who is um, along perhaps with Tsitsipas, the rising star uh, among the young players on the men's tour. So I, I'm very pleased for, for Lopez. I'm not stunned that, that he made it through the final. It seems like it was a, a war of attrition in the end with Gilles Simon, who knows a thing or two about wars of attrition. Uh, but Lopez apparently came through in the, the final set tie break, and well done him. Yeah, definitely. I think, again, uh, uh, a very dangerous opponent in grass, and uh, probably will find his way into our conversation when we go ahead and talk Wimbledon. So let's quickly switch to the to the ladies. So Matt, Ash Barty, uh, without dropping a set, uh, backs a French Open win uh, in a grass court tournament. Pretty impressive stuff. Yes, and um, as we record this podcast, I'm in the middle of writing my article about her ascension to number one. And, you know, obviously people can read the, the, the article in full, but just to give a 
a Cliff Notes version of it. I think one of the great there's so there are many great things about Ash Barty being number one. One is that you know she's a num- world number one outside the United States or Europe, so it expands the globe in, in that respect. Also, that she's she's an old school Aussie in all the best ways. I mean, there's there's a, there's a lot of Rod Laver and Ken Wo- Rosewall, not in terms of game style, but in terms of uh, manner uh, and, and decorum. And it, so, so Barty being number one is a great ambassador for tennis in general, not just women's tennis. But the thing that I, I'm noting in the article when people read it, this is just this is an unconventional story. It's an unconventional story in the sense that, you know, she stepped away to play cricket and then came back. That is not a normal path to the number one ranking in the world. And I think that's a very empowering and inspiring lesson to people that, you know, you do not have to be so wedded to one career track or one life path that you have to put everything else aside. I mean, yes, once you do play a a professional sport, you have to be extremely focused on it. But th- that need to focus on the day to day, you know, strictly on the sport that you play, you know, you do, but like in a larger sense and, in, and viewed in a much larger context, the idea of taking a year or two away from, from your chosen sport to try something else, we should not be afraid of doing that. And there's a guy you might have heard about, Sakib, also Andrew, uh, names. A little bit familiar, Michael Jordan. He uh, stepped away from basketball to play baseball. And when he came back to play basketball, it didn't exactly hurt him. In fact, when he came back to play basketball, the 1996 Chicago Bulls team was the winningest team in NBA history in terms of the regular season, 72 wins. Uh, Not until the uh, Golden State Warriors won 73 games in 2016 were uh, the 96 Bulls uh, record uh, uh, eclipsed. So, you know, Jordan himself is an example of stepping away, having the freedom, the confidence in your own skin, the willingness to try something different. And it doesn't have to, you know, destroy or, or uproot your life. You can try something different and you can still get back on the beam. That That is really a, a very empowering message from Ash Barty because, it's good for young people to know that you don't have to be on one track, that you don't have to do something the same way everyone else does it. So that that's really a, one of many empowering messages sent by the rise of Ashley Barty. I believe that there's a, a book that's come out recently by a fellow called David Epstein called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World which uh, speaks to your point there, Matt, that uh, for, for, for tennis players, many of them, I mean, we saw Pear and Songa virtually sort of playing soccer on uh, the tennis court uh, this week in Hallard, you know, playing foot tennis, as it were, for a while. A lot of the, the, the players, uh, Djokovic enjoys soccer, Federer, was thinking about playing soccer as a teenager. A, a lot of them play different sports and then specialize later on. So, 
yeah, that, that question about being a generalist and then ultimately specializing, that's one I'd reinforce. And, and it, it's, it's kind of funny in a way because when we've all played, you know, uh, not sport at high level, but uh, I don't know about you guys, but growing up in India, we had uh, in school, we would play cricket and uh, tennis, but then there were like some phenomenally gifted athletes who were good at one sport, but they would just casually dominate all sports. And this kind of thing, I guess, uh, propels uh, at the highest of levels. And then, you know, the good example of Jordan and now Barty, you, you do make a choice. Uh, so let me ask you this uh uh, Matt, uh, we'll come back to this body conversation, Wimbledon, but Sophia Kennan also backed her win over Serena Williams uh, by beating Belinda Bencic in a three-set final in Mallorca. So the women's field is also producing a lot of winners, and they are not producing 37-year-old winners like Feliciano Lopez. The depth at the you know the younger span of age group is is quite fascinating. You, you, you know, you can have multiple winners in each tournament. I think that depth is really good, and I know you've written about it. Uh, just uh, uh, try to say a few words on Sophia Kennan's uh, win and, you know, just what she means to American tennis right now. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I have a strong verdict on what she means to American tennis, especially since when you when you consider that Kennan, like Amanda Anasimova, comes from, you know, R- Russian parents. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a an American tennis revolution by way of Russia, um, which is kind of an interesting point to make in this uh, era of American politics and whatnot. But that point aside, um, the, the, the merits of, of Kennan's win in Mallorca need to be appreciated. She went through Elise Mertens, then Anastasia Sevastova, who has made the semis or better in Mallorca each of the last four years and has the crafty kind of game which translates well to grass. So she beat Sevastova in three sets in the semis and then saved three match points to beat Belinda Bencic, who loves grass. Uh, in the final. So, I mean, three, those are three high-end wins. Um, Mallorca, kind of like Hala, doesn't get quite the same field or, or quite the level of attention that the British grass court tournaments do. So, you know, Birmingham for the women, kind of relative to Queen's Club for the men. But Kennan's last three wins in Mallorca, put those up against anyone on the WTA Tour. Those are quality uh, victories for her. So, you know, she is j- yet another person who, if you were to say she's going to make the semifinals of Wimbledon, I would not be terribly shocked at this point. Mm. Uh, maybe Andrew can relate. Uh, I'm sure he's following some of the Cricket World Cup and uh, what he just said about Kenan, you know, and Anisimova uh, being, uh, you know, Russian origin. English cricket team, I think, jokingly, a lot of people in the media were calling the World 11 because. Uh, there are very few guys who were actually born in England in that team, but you know that's that's the beauty of the global sport. And this guy Jofra Archer was fast tracked into the English national side, so he can help England win the World Cup. Uh, so before we start talking Wimbledon, Andrew uh, and Matt, both of you, any word on Andy Murray? What you've seen and uh, how this will impact the doubles game? Uh, I know with Murray going, doubles will get a lot of center stage, if not center court, maybe court one. What are your impressions and how do you think his presence in the doubles draw would boost the game, even though Grand Slams really don't need any boosting? But I think uh, whenever a marquee player comes into the play uh, of the doubles field, it, you know, it definitely means more TV viewership. Andrew, you can go first and then Matt, you can give your views on this. Well, I've got to say, I think that that is largely going to be a British phenomenon. Uh, 
the British traveling tennis journalist crew for a long time was the Andy Murray crew. And then, uh, you know, the, the occasional uh, trip out to see Heather Watson or someone else, uh, Laura Robson, for example, um, on the outer courts. But it, it was the Murray story. And having Murray coming back in time to, to play at Wimbledon, um, he and Herbert, uh, as long as Herbert can, can sneak around Nicolas Mau. Uh, in the locker rooms if they, they managed to get onto the court and they managed to, to make it through a few rounds, you'll get some, some writing in the British papers about it. But Wimbledon is such a big phenomenon in the British sporting calendar. It's not going to change TV viewing or anything else like that. Um, so I, I just hope for Murray it is the continuation of his ability to stay in the men's game as long as he wants to stay in it, whether he reorients himself towards doubles, which he could choose to do, or whether he chooses to continue to play and to try and make it back on the singles tour. I'd, I'd really think about it more hmm. as an Andy Murray story and, and possibly a British tennis story than I would a, a double story. So, Matt, before you come in, let me just plant this one more question because you've written exclusively about scheduling at majors and tournaments and building on what a Andrew said. If Murray, suppose, does win a couple of matches, so could you see a scenario where he's being put on center court and maybe, you know, something fans always discuss and someone gets short change and then only, say, the order of play is one women's singles match, one gentleman's singles match, and then Andy Murray doubles match. And uh, your thoughts on that? I know this is total uh, touching clickbait stuff, but, you know, uh, I just couldn't resist asking this. I, I'm going to make it very simple. No, he's not going to be scheduled uh, on on center court first week doubles. That's, that's not going to happen. Um, in, in terms of a broader assessment of Murray, the main thing is he came through this tournament, by all accounts, healthy. That's that's the first thing that that physically he held up all right. That's priority number one. The in terms of now in terms of doubles and its global platform, I would generally agree with Andrew's assessment. This is a Murray thing and a British thing, not so much a doubles thing. But if we want to talk about improving the doubles platform, if change is going to happen, it's going to be through television. Um, and I would use soccer as an example. Um, Soccer used to be covered in the United States as this other sport, um, and and the the quality and content of coverage was dumbed down. You know, treating soccer as this alien creature that you know, oh, we have to really simplify the way we talk about it. In the middle of last decade, um, ESPN began to talk about soccer the way you know mature adults talked about soccer, the way an informed soccer fan would want the sport to be talked about. And while that's not my, not, while other factors surely played a big role in increasing soccer's popularity on television and in the larger marketplace in the United States, a big key certainly was talking about soccer as though it, you know, you're, you're a serious soccer fan and not as though it was this, you know, really strange curiosity shop object that you buy for $3 at a, at a corner store. 
Um, so it's, it's very similar with doubles in tennis. If ESPN in particular, you know, since it has American TV rights for three of the four majors, if ESPN wants to showcase doubles and, and figure it, feature it more prominently on coverage, you will see doubles gain at least some more traction. The problem is I don't see ESPN having any market incentive, at least from its point of view and its own internal thinking to want to do that. But if we ever had a context in which doubles was consciously promoted more, not just the Bryans, not just Andy Murray, not just the Williams sisters, but doubles in general, you know, we would see the sport gain more traction. And so to make one more point on doubles, I have uh, argued recently that WTA tennis, in order to increase its the way it is perceived and therefore to gain more leverage in scheduling controversies at the majors, I think that the WTA needs to go to five set major tournament finals. Uh, not, not anything beyond that, at least not the start. You know, start small, work your way up. But I do think that the WTA would benefit in a lot of ways from five set major finals. If you were to do that, I think that it would be a lot easier to do two things. One, have a women's major final on Sunday instead of Saturday because to, to get an extra day of rest before that extra length battle, should it ever be approved. And second, flowing from putting the women's final on Sundays, you would have an open Saturday, final Saturday at the majors. You could have doubles really at least two doubles finals, if not all three, women's, men's, and mixed. And so if, 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 the, if the sport of tennis, chiefly television, but also you know, uh, the WTA and other power brokers and decision makers wanted to rearrange the scheduling architecture at tournaments, it, it could do so in ways that would vastly increase the global platform for doubles. So I don't think that Andy Murray is going to do it, as, as Andrew would readily agree, but, but, but there are, are ways tennis could choose to increase the profile of doubles. I just don't think those are going to happen anytime soon, but I wish they would. Hmm. I think that, that kind of gives uh, actually a great platform for this conversation to happen. You know, Matt, you made some really good points because this can go back to my conversation with Rajiv Ram and his wife, and they asked me in a podcast why doesn't a casual fan watch tennis when they actually double tennis when they actually play double? So I think yeah, this is some great points. I can use this to engage many other conversations. So let's get started with Wimbledon, gentlemen. So let's talk ladies first here. Uh, uh, Andrew, if you want to go first, uh, we've done this power rankings with Matt and Murd leading up to Clay and French Open. Uh, what are some of the names that you know come to mind before seeing the draw? Uh, who you know who are your top five uh, or even more if you have. Uh, you know, a bucket load of players. Who, who are some of the names that you want to share with the listeners here for Wimbledon? Um, well, the the players who were ranked number one and number two uh, moving into this week, and I'm not sure if they're, I think they're just going to swap positions, Osaka and Barty. Um, Barty has just shown us she can play on grass and has got the, the variety to really succeed on, on grass. Um, Osaka, uh, the jury's still out there, I think. Um, but obviously the world number one and, and number two and Osaka having uh, you know, won back-to-back majors, you'd, you'd hope that she's in the mix. Uh, Kerber, 
can win at Wimbledon. So can Petra Kvitova. And, and my fifth player, who I desperately hope is fit for, uh, for Wimbledon, although I'm, I'm not sure that she will be generally, genuinely, is Bianca Andrescu, who started the year so memorably, went all the way to win the, uh, the final at Indian Wells, but then has picked up uh, a shoulder twinge that has lasted through the clay court season. And Andrescu has to be one of the, the really top long-term prospects for the WTA. And if her shoulder isn't ready, I really hope that she does what she needs to do to get it ready to, to be, for her to be a sustained competitor over the next 10 years or so, not to push herself hard and risk having uh, some kind of a, a chronic issue in it. So those would be some of the people who, who I'd hope to see making runs in the, the women's tournament this year. Hey, Matt, so uh, I'm sure you have some names and some of them could be common. So walk us through your list and uh, where does Serena William, you know, come in? If, is she top five for you or is she safe for a later conversation when we talk maybe uh, contenders? Uh, I, I would definitely put Serena in the top five. And I think if you look at last year, it's a, it's really, you know, there's a lot that's similar this year that, you know, Serena didn't have a lot of match play. Her health wasn't the best played exactly three matches at Roland Garros and, you know, Wimbledon was always the realistic priority, you know, so she did quite well at Wimbledon last year with little match play. So she could, she could do the same this year and it would not be surprising. Um, Part of why Serena is top five, though, is simply that you can't confidently rely on or predict other players uh, being in the top five as well. Here's here's the here's the big stat we need to remember from 2018 at Wimbledon. One player in the top 10 seeds made Manic Monday. None made the quarters. You know, and, and Karolina Pliskova, whose record at Wimbledon is terrible, was that one player among the top 10 seeds to make Manic Monday. And she was down a set and a break to Buzarnescu in the third round, really was lucky to get out of that match. So seedings at, 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 in the men matter. You know, Federer being two so that he doesn't have to play Djokovic till the final, that's a pretty big deal. But for the women, it's really not the same. It's, 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 it's you know, pick a name out of the hat not because the quality is so poor on tour. We, all, we would all agree that the quality of the WTA is exceptionally good and that the, the quality of depth is exceptionally strong. But just the, 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 the players who, make, who do really well and go deep at one major, they don't generally turn over to the next one. Andrew has, in fact, you know, given us that stat about how at the last 10 majors, so that means 40 semifinal slots, Nobody on the WTA tour has made more than three semifinals in those last 10 majors. You've had 24 different individuals making semifinals in the last 10 major tournaments, occupying those 40 semifinal slots. So you would, you would naturally look to Barty and Kvitova and Serena and probably also Belinda Bencic, but to, to pick any one of those players with confidence Barty probably being the one exception, 
it, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. You know, with Kvitova, the thing we need to remember is that she doesn't do well in heat. It was it was in the 80s last year in round one when she very clearly did not look very comfortable against Sasnovich, you know, and she lost. So she is definitely hoping for some cloudy skies and some temperatures in the low 70s, high 60s. But, you know, there's a heat wave in Europe right now. So one would certainly not bank on comfortable, cool conditions. So it's going to be a lot about the draw. It's going to be a lot about the the, the weather conditions and also simply who gets hot. Um, we need to remember that last year with the carnage in terms of seedings, um, we had uh, Serena was seated 25th as a provisional ranking. And then Kerber was seated 11th, Ostapenko 12th, and uh, Julia Gurgis uh, made uh, a semifinal seated 13. So, um, you know, so seeds are not going to tell the story. And really, if, if, if history, recent history is a guide, we do not really have a clue which players are going to be in the Wimbledon semifinals. So, Matt, there I'm, I'm going to chime in and say something which may come across as controversial, but I honestly could not say that the WTA singles field right now is a high-quality field because of the reason that you don't have uh, a group of players who regularly make it through to the top tournament finals. That uh, That is something that I would expect. And I, you know, on the on the ATP side, apart from the surviving big three, who, when we get to talk about the the ATP draw, it will be surprising if two out of the three big three don't make it through to the semifinals. But then you look at the rest of the field. Uh, on the ATP side, you you aren't penciling players into the quarterfinals and beyond. So for me, quality is about consistency and consistency of results. And there there are exciting players and there are players who, who give you a lot of hope that they are going to be consistent in the future. But this this amount of randomness that is present at the moment in the WTA and then strip out the, uh, the, the three uh, perennial major champions on the, the men's side, there's randomness on the, the ATP side. Um, I, th- I think it's really hard to describe either tour as a high quality field. Uh, you know, I'd say that's entirely fair and it's entirely reasonable to expect more from top WTA players. Uh, it, it's to me, it just seems as though with with th- that the the nature of the WTA and the ATP are so different in that with the WTA, the current dynamic is such that, you know, you can be a, a, a seated player and get a really tough draw in the second round of a major. So, you know, maybe the first round you get a, a cupcake, but there are just so few easy draws for seated players in the WTA these days because there are like two dozen players who, you know, can get on a roll. So 
The ATP, on the other hand, and I've written about this earlier in the year at our website, tennisaccent.com, you look at players 6 through 30, and, you know, Sitsipas is an exception. Maybe you could say to an extent Fanini or, and also Hatchinoff are, are slight exceptions, Vavrinka to a degree as well. But for the most part, you look at players 6 through 30, and there's not much, there's no there there. There's not really a whole lot going on. Whereas with the WTA, it's not stagnation from 6 to 30, but it's just a lot of trading places in terms of some players, you know, going up 10, 15 spots after a really good set of, after a really good major tournament or a really good uh, three-week swing and other, uh, other players, you know, moving downward. But it's, it's a, it's a, it's, there's a lot of dynamism and, and movement in that 6 to 30 range, whereas with the ATP, it isn't. So it is undeniably true that the WTA needs to have top players making quarters and semis more regularly. If, if for no, no other reason than that, you get some rivalries, which get traction, you know, having Sloan Stevens and Simona Halep play in Roland Garros and Montreal last year, both very compelling finals. You know, there are certainly a lot of people around the world who watched both the Roland Garros final and the Montreal final and said, Hey, I can get used to this. I can, I can really get used to enjoying these two women play in end stage matches of important tournaments on a regular basis. Well, they haven't played since. So the, the, I, we definitely agree that the WTA needs more traction from rivalries and from top players playing regularly in semifinals, finals, even quarterfinals. Um, it, it's, just, it's just that the nature of the two tours, while having certainly some strong similarities that you alluded to, quite accurately, so much else is also different. And so I guess we're just focusing on the different details. But, uh, it, it, you know, I think your points are entirely valid. And, and I would also agree that the WTA needs to see movement along the lines that you've articulated. I think it's a, it's a good conversation. And I'll just chip in using this dialogue between you two as a building block. So, Matt, that being said, same question to you both. Who are some of the contenders you know, if those first five were your favorites, and where does Conta and Madison Keys, some of these names fit in in your list of contenders? Uh, you want you want me to tackle that first? Yeah, you can go first, and then Andrew. You know, same question. You know, who are the, some of the next five names? You know, in in your yeah, list. Yeah, so you know, obviously, so we're looking at this before the draw, so we don't have a draw sheet, and I, I guess without trying to, you know, since I don't have names available. The point I would make is that, you know, if a player, you know, if you get two talented players, I would like to go up against an opponent. If I am, you know, Joe Conta or somebody like that, I'd like to go up against a certain kind of opponent, not so much playing style, but in terms of the inner game and handling pressure. So for, for instance, let's, let's take as an example, Sophia Kennan, who is just an extremely tough player, you know, with the quality wins I talked about in Mallorca. But also, she's a very dogged player. She doesn't. She she lets you know that she's in for a full fight, and so that is the kind of player I think that you know if we're talking about Kanta or uh, Vandrushova or or other uh, players you know outside the top ten seeds, um, you know. So Kennan would be a player I'd like to avoid if I'm Kanta or or one of those other uh, players outside the top ten. Whereas you know someone such as Caroline Garcia. Uh, someone else who has had trouble 
uh, establishing a higher standard, has had trouble um, establishing herself at the top tier of the sport. That's the kind of player I would like to play. So without being name specific, I think that's a general dynamic to look for. You know, some players are are especially good because of their shot making and their technique uh, and how good they can be when everything's going right. Uh, but other players uh, win not so much because of the shot making or the technique. Obviously, you have to have that at a certain level, but they win more because of how well they compete. And I would definitely put Kennan in that particular box. So may, I would make that distinction in terms of uh, wh- which kind of draws or which kind of players um, have a good chance when we when we get the draw and we can see it. I think that's going to be one of the factors to look for. Over to you, Andrew. Uh, same question. Who are some of the names in the second tier, according to you, who could do some damage? Um, gosh, Benchich, who made the final uh, at Mallorca, uh, apparently enjoys playing on, on grass. I've just been taking a look at the um, the players who have made the semifinals at Wimbledon on the WTA side in the last uh, five tournaments. Safarova has retired. Uh, Bouchard uh, is lost at sea somewhere. Um, Halip and Kvitova, both of them could make deep runs. Uh, Muguruza, no one ever knows what kind of tournament uh, Garbini is going to have but she's a two-time semi-finalist. Uh, so is Kerber, who I mentioned uh, the first time out. Uh, Venus Williams. Um, I don't know if uh, she's got enough to make a deep run, but she would be a, a, uh, a great story if she had one more great run at Wimbledon in front of her. Serena Williams, uh, perennial semi-finalist uh, last year, Julia Gurgis, um, Ostapenko as well. No one ever knows whether Ostapenko is going to go uh, supernova or something else. So the, and, and then you have Radwanska who's, who, who's also retired and um, Maria Sharapova, uh, Vesnina has also made the semi-finals. The, 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 the thing about the WTA at the moment that I, I just can't get around is this sense of randomness. And I, I'm, ju- I'm, I'm just really hoping that someone, uh, Abati, Anasaka, uh, Pliskova, um, potentially Halips, potentially Sloan Stevens, you know, develops the the Friday or the, I guess at Wimbledon, it's probably Thursday, isn't it? They play the women's semifinals, but you know, the Thursday, Saturday gene that says, I'm going to be there at the final weekend, week in, week out. That's something that, uh, that I would love to see. All right. So Andrew is saying definitely the sport uh, could, uh, you know, could propel itself by having some rivalries at the business end of the tournament. I think that's definitely, a good way of looking at it. So before we switch to the men, 
the same question we always ask in majors, Matt, who, who's uh, without the draw, who are some of the most dangerous opponents? I mean, is who are not seated? I mean, is someone like in men's side is curious? Who's someone on the women's side that no one would want to face in the opening round? I know Kenan is one of those, but who, who else is there that someone will scare, you know, any seated player across the draw sheet? Well, I'm I'm looking at the at the live rankings here. I I think that well, you have to look at Victoria Azarenka. You know, she she it's it's just amazing how Azarenka gets a really tough player in the opening rounds of a tournament. Um, it's been Osaka on a number of occasions this year, also Serena in that Indian Wells match, which remains and is going to remain one of the matches of the year. And these matches just seem to slip through Azarenka's fingers 6-4 in the third or something like that. She keeps losing these close matches to elite players early. And so, you know, you just you just wonder if she gets another crack at it, is, is, is she finally going to be able to break through? Because there's good tennis left in her, but she just keeps losing those close matches to good players. So um, she certainly has to be given a chance. Is Christina Mladenovic one of them or is someone... Does she her game uh, renders well yes, in grass? I, I would, I would say so. You know, I was disappointed that she lost early. Uh, I, I believe in Birmingham, um, but you know, she did push Serena Williams last year in the third round of Wimbledon, of uh, two very close sets. And you know, she does have a game one would generally think is tailored to grass. You know, she can definitely slice. She can definitely play. Uh, the finesse tennis that grass rewards more than other surfaces. So she she certainly belongs in that conversation. Absolutely. Okay. So Andrew, if you, do you have a name or uh, to add to this list before we uh, switch to to the men's side of the event? I always think that if you get Kaya Kanepi in the first round, then uh, <laughs> you 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 schedule an extra half hour of practice. <laughs> well said. All right, so on that note, uh, I think we covered quite a lot uh, without actually having a draw sheet and, you know, just staying true to our form uh, at, at the podcast here. So let's talk about the men. And, Andrew, you are first. Uh, Novak Djokovic uh, was on most people's list as the number one favorite. Uh, he usually doesn't play the warm-up at Wimbledon. Last year, he did play Queens. So how do you stack up your five men, you know, before the draw sheet is announced? You know, who should be the favorites according to you and, uh, you know, when the business end arrives at Wimbledon? Yeah, that's that's an incredibly tough question, Saki. <laughs> at least, at least, at least, if you're asked to, to to think about four and five, because three names, you, it's just it, yeah, three three names write themselves in. So let let let's move beyond. In fact, let's can 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 we concede three names and 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 give me. The next five, sure. Yeah, that's even better. Give, give us, give us the next five. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure if uh, you know Kevin Anderson is is um, defending a lot of points. I'm not sure if he's really back yet. Um, Murray obviously isn't going to play singles this year, and and he's been a, a very successful grass player. Um, Raonic, I didn't get to see in uh, his his match at Queens, so I've not got a sense of Raonic's form. But it, but he's 
always uh, been a contender at Wimbledon. Um, Tsitsipas uh, lost to Oje Aliassime in uh, Queens this year, and Felix is coming. I I think it's a year too early for him that you would that you would think of him as as a potential quarterfinalist or a semifinalist, but uh, he's 11 in the race before uh, the Queen's points get allocated. Um, there is a there is a, a genuine dark horse uh, grass candidate who has done extremely well in the last couple of weeks, and that's Matteo Berrettini, 23-year-old Italian, who was number 14 in the race coming into uh, Hallett. Um, so he made the uh, semifinals, I think. He, he lost to Goffin in the semis at Hallett. And, and he, he's one of the players with a bullet right now. Um, I'm not sure what his singles ranking is, whether he's going to, to get a seeding. Um, just checking quickly, he's in the twenties, so yeah, he'll 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 definitely get a seeding at Wimbledon. So so those are some of my guys to watch out for. Mm. So Matt, you can come in, but uh, Andrew didn't include Marin Cilic, you know, whose stock hasn't been quite the same this year. And then uh, Dominic Team is again a guy who has to prove on the surface quite a lot. So fire away with your usual suspects, you know, to the throne, and you know, in what order are they stacked up? Well, you know, so we have to make mention of the fact that Juan Martin Del Potro is out. And he was going to be, in my mind, uh, a significant factor. He was going to be the player that the, the big three did not want to have in their quarter. But now we don't have to worry about that. Uh, you know, now, now we don't have that as a possibility. And so, you know, Milos Raonic on Wimbledon grass. I mean, John Isner has not played tennis for so long. He's going to play the tournament, apparently. But he's been out of action for so long that it's really hard to see <clears throat> how he's going to be able to restart the engine and do anything meaningful. I mean, it's just not a good position for him. Very similar to the man he lost to in last year's semifinals, Kevin Anderson. So I think of like the big guy server types. Uh, it's Milos Raonic uh, is the guy who has at least had some match play recently and might be able to get on a roll, might be able to get on to a surface and, and in, into a context, you know, where he's had legitimate success before. And so outside Raonich and Tsitsipas, uh, I am not seeing very many non-big three threats. I mean, and if we're talking about threat, I think, you know, that that is generally means quarterfinal, semifinal. You know, if you're in, if you're able to get past Manic Monday at Wimbledon, you know, you're you're in the mix as a real factor in this tournament. So um, there are probably going to be a couple guys who make the quarterfinals simply because they get the right draw. That could be Dominic Team. Um, you know, maybe Team might play a Kevin Anderson. He might they might be drawn into the same quarter. We'll obviously see how the draw sheet works out. But like whoever gets Anderson's quarter and whoever gets a, a subsection, you know, with say Fanini, um, someone who really doesn't do well on grass at all, um, could make the quarterfinals just by virtue of having a good draw. Now, in terms of, you know, who can really ma ma make the semifinals and beyond, 
boy, the cupboard is very, very thin, which, which again, to reiterate, is, is the exact antithesis of the WTA. Not that it means that the WTA is necessarily a better tour. You know, I, we, Andrew and I had that conversation earlier in this show, but it does underscore how uh, thin the ATP really is right now once you get past the big three. Yeah, and one name that we haven't talked about yet who at the start of this year or this time last year you might have thought was going to be in the mix is Alexander Zverev, who after winning the World Tour Finals last year, potentially unlocking big tournaments, just really seems to be in reverse right now. He went out and howled to Goffin, uh admittedly in a third set tie break, but, you know, could this be the tournament where he, where he makes his breakthrough? Yes, he could. He's, he's, he's got, he's got quality, but in terms of his confidence and his ability in the, in the grand slam tournaments, you absolutely have to get through the first three rounds with, you know, one set drop, possibly two sets dropped. Zverev seems to find his, his way into five-set matches in the early stages of Grand Slam tournaments over and over again. He cannot find his way to coast through the early stages so he can turn it on later on. And so he's, he's one of the players who I've been most disappointed about in the last year or so, that he hasn't taken the next step to be a regular contender, and he's not on my list. Khachanov is another. He um, won in Paris. He beat Djokovic in Paris, uh, something of an upset to win that final, but he just hasn't gone forward, at least as far as I can see, in 2019. I don't know what you think, Matt. I, I would fundamentally agree, and I would say specifically with, res- with regard to Zverev, you know, he had a he had, he's had a bad year, but he had a really good French Open, and he ha- and we might say, okay, quarterfinals. You know, that's not really raising the bar. Narrowly viewed, yes. But I remember telling this to Sakib on a podcast we had about a month ago about Zverev that before Roland Garros, that you know, at the beginning of 2019, if we were all sitting here and saying Zverev would make the quarterfinals at Roland Garros, it would be looked at as a disappointment. But a week before Roland Garros, I remember telling Sakib. If he makes the quarterfinals, it's a great result because precisely because of all the struggles that he's had relative to the, the poor quality of his year, getting to the quarters would kind of reset his season. And the, the, the particular benefit of that quarterfinal at Roland Garros, a reason, and a reason why I, that was a good result for him under the circumstances, even though it generally seems modest, you know, he's still waiting to make a first major semifinal is that he played Djokovic. You know, he played he played an elite player in a major quarterfinal. It was his first taste of going up against a big three player at that stage of a major tournament. And we're, we, all, we saw this with Tsitsipas against Rafael Nadal at the Australian Open. It's important for young players not necessarily to, you know, to, to win big tournaments early, but you would definitely want to be playing the big boys in latter stages of important tournaments so that you simply get the benefit of that experience. And it might take two, three, four more years 
for Sitsipas or Zverev. Um, you know, it's taken team has been outclassed in two straight Roland Garros finals by Nadal. It's he if they meet next year, you know, Nadal would obviously still be the favorite, barring uh, some special circumstance. It might take several more bites at the apple for any of these younger players uh, to take down one of the big three in a major semifinal or final, but to at least collect these experiences now so that you can draw upon them more regularly uh, for the rest of your career and for the, for the future, that's very important. So Zverev finally banked one of those experiences. And so on, on that basis, if he can just get to the quarters and lose to a big three guy, that would be a positive Wimbledon for him. So it is a commentary simultaneously on the poor quality of his year that I'm sitting here saying that a Wimbledon quarterfinal would be good for Zverev. But that having been said, if he does do it, it does enable him to move forward and get unstuck, uh, perhaps to the point that he can make his 2020 season at the majors, um, the kind of season that many people hoped his 2019 would be. So just to bank experiences, get them under your belt against the big three late in the second week of a major, that's really the goal for not only Zverev, but also Tsitsipas team and some of the other younger players, Hachinov included as well, uh, that we've been talking about. Hmm. So you guys covered quite a lot. So that made it uh, quite easy for me to jump to my next uh, set of questions that I have uh, when we look at these potential tournaments. And uh, who are some of the more dangerous uh, players? Uh, some lower seeds and some folks like uh, Kyrgios who are not seeded. Jean Leonard Struff has made quite, uh, you know, uh, some strides in this season. So, Andrew, who are some of the first week danger opponents that are lurking there that, you know, Rafa Nadal or Roger Federer would not want to see across the net? Um, you, you mentioned one of mine, which is uh, Jan Leonard Struff. Uh, let's see. Um, Goffin won't be seeded, I think, uh, when he when he comes um, to Wimbledon, he's he's current. Is Matt? Do you know if he's seated? Yeah, he should be. He's all inside the top twenty-five. Is he? I, I I think I was looking at the race listings rather yeah, than the uh, the, the rankings. No, he's he's at 30, he's thirty-three now, which might just. So, but live rankings, he's you know, the, the and the live. If you go to the live rankings page, he's already up at twenty three because of his uh, two hundred fifty five point gain in Hala. Okay, all right. So, uh, yeah, that that. That's that a reminder to our it. listeners: recording this podcast on Sunday, you know, you're listening to it on Tuesday or Wednesday. Just that clears up that little discrepancy. Okay. Uh, all right. Um... So let me let me uh, you know present this in a different way, Andrew. Uh, Hubert Hurkas uh, is one of the upcoming players. Nicholas Jarry is there. Nick Kyrgios is there. Who are some of these guys who can do some damage when the grass is still green and the baseline is not worn out? And you know any of the top guys, uh, you know, are not fancying sees their name across in, in, in the draw sheet. Uh, you know, John Millman is one of those guys, I guess. I yeah. I I understood the question. I, I was I was I was just looking. I was scrolling through, and thinking, who would I hate to face? Would I hate to face Grigor Dimitrov? 
not really. And, uh, you know, he's something of a known quantity. Uh, Martin Fuksovich uh, is round about 50 or so. I think he's a very solid player and, and would give you a run for the money. Um, but I don't know. I mean, the, the, again, if I, if I think about where the, the, the top players are right now, and, and by the top players, I, I, I do mean the, the big three, um, they're, they're just so stable right now. Nadal often has weird wobbles in Wimbledon. Uh, that wasn't meant to be alliterative, though it turned out to be. Uh, I remember Steve <laughs> Darcy knocked him off uh, one year, and that was a big upset. And Lucas Russell did as well. So I, I think for Nadal, it depends on, on, on how he's feeling in his body and himself as he comes into the, the event. Um, I mean, one of the, the things about uh, Oji Al-Yassim is that, you know, he would have looked like he was someone to watch out for in the early stages, but, but he's going to have a seeding. So honestly, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here in terms of uh, names of people that are young up-and-comers and that's one of the worrying things about uh, where the, the the men's game is right now. That, mm. that that you look around and you're not seeing a lot of players um, in the 20 to 22 range who you think these these could really test the big guns. Mm. All right. So uh, same question to you, Matt. Uh, here, and I'll even throw a couple more names as well this time. Uh, Joe Wilfersonga had a good outing against Roger Federer. You think he has in him to pull a first week uh, upset in a best of five uh, set event? I know he can definitely play on grass. Uh, and who are some of the other names, according to you, that Andrew have added already? Well, I, I think the main point to make here is that there's a difference between who can pull off an upset against the big three and who can pull off an upset against teams, Verev, Kando. Uh, Nishikori, etc. I think that you know a lot of players are capable of the latter, but the former, you know that that is just a different proposition. So I, I would make that distinction right off the bat. I, I think that a, a, a tough kind of player for a team or a Zverev or anybody outside the big three, Riley Opelka. You get a you get a guy who can throw down bombs on grass when it's slick in the first few days of Wimbledon. That you know that is always always uh a real threat for for something to happen you know he gets he wins tie breaks he gets hot he just leans on his serve stays in his zone uh that you know that's the prototypical kind of player i think of uh who can cause uh some havoc in the brackets um I, I, and as for dimitrov you know i think if you the way he competed at roland garros was encouraging you know it wasn't same old gregor yeah, you could say that he lost three tie breaks to Stan and that he didn't play the big points as well as he could have. But, I mean, those were three close, high-quality sets in which Stan had to serve his way out of trouble. So it's kind of interesting that Dimitrov now being in the, in the uh, you know, upper 40s of the rankings, you know, having this fall from grace, he could be on his way back to playing like a better player. I mean, he cert certainly showed the possibility in Paris that he could be that kind of player. 
So while the big, none of the big three would quake in their boots, as Andrew did say, but you put them against a Zverev or, or team, something like that, that, that could definitely turn into an upset. So I think the main thing is to, to, to differentiate between big three upset potential, where Andrew and I see basically nothing on the horizon, and upsets you know, from four to ten uh, in, that, in that seed range or something similar. Some of the Nadal friends that I sometimes interact with, they are of the idea that Nadal can still use a friendly draw in the first few rounds because that's where, you know, Lucas Rasol and some of those results, Nick Kyrgios in 2014 and uh, have happened and then Gilles Miller in 2016. But that being said, uh, let's uh, bring Nick Kyrgios in the conversation. Uh, the guy really hasn't won a match since his, uh, you know, podcast about Djokovic and Murray and some of the comments he made about Nadal. Uh, so, Andrew, do you want to go first here? I mean, I know, still very young, but it does seem like, you know, time is running out on everyone and uh, not sure if this guy is fully committed to the game and even his loss against Oji Aliasim, he was doing a lot of tweeners, a lot of creative shots. Uh, I just caught the highlights. The match was still pretty close, but in the end, it seemed like even on match point, he's doing the between the, uh, between the you know, or the point before match point, between the legs, half volley when it was not needed. Uh, your thoughts on him? I know uh, you covered uh, him in depth at Cincy last year uh, when you were covering the event for tennis with an accent. Uh, where does Kyrgios fit in here? I mean... Uh, your thoughts? Nobody knows. Honestly, nobody knows. Nick doesn't know. Um, Nick had a heavy fall um, early in the third set in his match against Oji Aliassime. And I think our colleague um, Mert was, uh, was watching and said that uh, uh, he, that's Murta Tunga, he that Kyrgios's movement was was very much compromised. That's what it looked to me, the, the little I saw of that third set. And, you know, I think that Kyrgios was, he's got such a live arm when he serves that he very nearly took it to a tie break. Um, I, I think the worrying thing for me is that he, at the moment, appears to be in a cycle of provocation, anger, resentment, and then rinse and repeat. Um, he had what I thought was a very ill-considered podcast interview with a journalist at which he, he just um, pulled some unnecessary controversy out into the open and I think that some of the things that we're we're hearing and reading is that that hasn't gone over very well with his fellow players. So I don't think he's he's coming to Wimbledon in a good place. Um, he is an extraordinarily talented individual that everyone has has waited for the light bulb to go on over his head about this is what I need to be able to do, to be competitive at the top of the men's game for the next 10 years. And at the moment, it doesn't seem like that light bulb is going to go on in 2019, or at least by the summer 2019, and, and it remains to be seen when it'll happen. But, you know, buy, hold or sell at the moment, there's a, there's, there's a sell and I'd go short on it. Mm. Uh, I know, Matt, uh, we talked a little bit about... Uh... 
uh, Medvedev and then you said same applies to Nick when we were doing our other segment of the podcast. So let me just, uh, you know, spare you, you know, the curious question, but at the same time, do you want to talk about Oji Aliasim and Sitsipas? Because this is a rivalry of the future, as Andrew said, two of the most upcoming bright talents on the men's side, and they are delivering week in, week out. Uh, so in a dream scenario, if they do play at Wimbledon, based on their young rivalry, Sitsipas has yet to win a set. So what are the, uh, what are the early makings of this, this matchup, according to you? What do you have so far watched? And then, Andrew, you can give your input on the same. Well, you know, so they, you know, they've met twice on the main tour and they met earlier, you know, in juniors and, and Sitsipas won one set in those junior sets, but only one. Uh, and Ajay Aliasim has won the last nine sets that they've played. And he's won all four sets this year in the two main tour matches, one at Indian Wells and then one, of course, at, at Queens. Uh, with, res- with regard to the Indian Wells match, we have to remember that, you know, Sitsipas was just coming off the Dubai final, and he had won the, the tournament he played uh, in France uh, indoors uh, the week before Dubai. So he had a lot of tennis. But what people might forget is that Auger Aliassime had also played a lot of tennis in a different continent. That was in the Rio Sao Paulo South American clay swing. So it, it, it for, it's not as though Auger Aliassime was at an advantage in that match. Both players had a lot of uh, mileage on the tires uh, going into that match, and Ajay Aliassim handled the situation better. So it's easy to say that, you know, Sitsipas has a mental block here, and there's some truth to that, some, because, because of how well he does at majors and how well he's done at the Masters 1000s to be utterly lost uh, against Ajay Aliassim. You know, to to that extent, there's there's some degree of legitimacy legitimacy to that claim. But these two matches are much more reflective of not Sitsipas's deficits, but Auger Aliassim's comfort zone. You know, I, it's more about how comfortable FAA is about playing Sitsipas than how uncomfortable Sitsipas is playing Felix. You know, there are two sides of that coin. And it's more about how how free uh, Felix is when he plays Stefano. So, um, you know, it's it's a test of all great players, and it's and it's you know it's well worth noting, as the uh, analyst Bastian Fakan did on Twitter Friday afternoon after the Queen's quarterfinal, he reminded us on Twitter that you know Rafael Nadal led Novak Djokovic fourteen to four after the first 18 matches of their head-to-head. And Djokovic was able to figure out against a contemporary, you know, someone relatively in the same age group, he figured out how to play someone who was giving him a really hard time. And so, you know, the part of the fascinating element of this just-beginning drama is that if Stefano Tsitsipas is going to become everything that many people expect he will become, he will figure out how to beat Felix. Maybe not to the extent that he is winning most of the matches against Felix, the way Djokovic has done against Nadal in, 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 in recent years to turn around that head-to-head from 14-4 Nadal to a winning record for Djokovic, but at least to the point where um, Tsitsipas is winning you know, roughly half the time, and when they take the match, there's no longer that ghost or the, the, that scar tissue uh, hanging over Sitsipas, he's able to take the court knowing that 
He has done it. He can continue to do it. So that that is going to be one of the central dramas in men's tennis in the 2020s. Andrew, uh, you see it any differently? Uh, what Matt said, uh, this budding rivalry. Not really. I mean, two you know two matches in at tour level. Hypothetically, suppose that they were 50-50 um, outcomes. You know, you flip a coin twice. There's a one in four chance it'll come up heads both times, or a one in four chance it'll come up tails both times. Uh, I, I just think that we'll need to to wait to see how the um, the two players develop. They're, they're still very much on the upswing. Um, and, uh, you know, let's, let, let's come back in after seven or eight matches rather than two in this case. But, I, but again, at Tsitsipas, Ojeal-Yassine rivalry is something really to look forward to. Uh, in the next few years. I think we can all agree on that. On that note, uh, uh, thank you both for joining and uh, thank you everyone who listens to this podcast as me and Matt have encouraged you in the past. Please go on uh, the iTunes, Apple podcast and just drop in a review. That really will help uh, get us uh, you know, the validation that a lot of people do tune into this podcast. We have changed home from Radio Influence to uh, red circle uh, and a parting thought from matt before we wrap the show matt go ahead oh just about our podcast that so we're on red circle we're on apple Podcasts, we're on stitcher we, we're also on radio public at radiopublic.com if that is a convenient listening outlet for you and we are working on getting this podcast on google podcasts and uh potentially more outlets so if if you have a preferred podcast outlet and we're not yet on that preferred outlet we're going to try and make it work do give us feedback on twitter sakib at s-a-q-i-b-a myself at m-z-e-m-e-k and thank you andrew for joining us i was delighted to do so all right thanks